Hello, welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. I'm excited for you all to hear this conversation today. I speak with two friends, Brooke and Matt, two doctor friends, I should say. They both have careers in higher education. I love getting the opportunity to talk with the bestie. I've known Brooke since childhood, and while I know her well, sitting down and having a deep conversation about her story thus far, I'm reminded that surrounding yourself with kind, motivated, generous people is such a blessing. Having an opportunity for others to hear her story as well as Matt's is so special. They were both vulnerable, open about never drinking alcohol and the associated pressures with that, anxiety during the teen years, and they even give us a cool behind the scenes look at what it's like to pursue and receive their PhDs. Enjoy this episode. Okay, so I'm here with Brooke and Matt, and I've known Brooke since, I think we met when we were 13, because we really met before high school, actually, at a tennis class. Yeah. In fact, I was just remembering this the other day. I have this, like, memory of you and I, the way the tennis club was set up, that you were like, um, they had a place, it's very common, I think, where you could see, like, everyone playing the bubble, right? Up with above, the windows and right. And I remember either before or after always loving to getting the peanut butter and cheese crackers out of the vending machine. <laughs> so that's what I remember about tennis. Is like, there's always a food connection. <laughs> uh, snacks. What I snacks were snacks. provided. But I do remember, so I went to a Catholic a school for 7th eighth grade, but Brooke and I had met playing tennis. And I do remember, I think, seeing you, like, on the very first day and being like, oh, I know someone that's at this, you know, public school. Right. because I also went to private school. That's right. I didn't right. know anyone. Oh, right. Yes. And ate peanut butter and crackers. And ate peanut butter crackers. <laughs> she probably actually remembers the tennis. <laughs> uh, so Brooke and Matt are here. Um, they both work at the University of Maryland. Are you okay with me saying that? I don't have to say that. Is that okay? Yeah. I'll pull it out because sometimes you don't want it. It's fine. You have to get like approval for it to be honest. All right, anyway. So they both work at the University of Maryland in higher education, which I think is awesome and super interesting. And so I want to talk to you about that. And um, they're also the parents of a teenage girl who I just interviewed and also a fifth grader, right? Yeah. And you have that perspective um, on raising young women today and then, you know, as they're kind of growing up and being in the world. So I so appreciative of you both being here and this we're happy they, to be here they can't see you nodding that <laughs> very excited to be here <laughs> can't wait to talk about the future okay women yeah. <laughs> yes you're an expert i'm sure okay so first i want to start with because i um well let's start with this maybe both brooke you go first just talk a little bit about what you do now like what your job is in higher ed and what you do sure uh, so I work in student affairs at the University of Maryland, and I am the chief of staff and assistant vice president for student affairs, which means I'm kind of the right-hand person for the vice president, and we are in a transition right now. Um, our vice president of 20 years just retired, and we are getting a new one. Uh, and so I deal a lot with whatever the kind of current issue or current crisis of the moment is. Uh, so I've dealt a lot with 
student illness, I've dealt a lot with um, student death, I've dealt with mold and um, adenovirus and really kind of <laughs> I'm getting a really frightened look. But I, do a lot, I do a lot of great things too. I do a lot of great things too. I work with an organization called ODK, Omicron Delta Kappa, which is the uh, top leadership student organization on campus, and I advise them. Uh, and so I have the opportunity to work with a lot of student leaders, uh, and it's really great. I really love my job. Sorry, I'm, you're fine. I'm putting a ring of wet on your your parents beautiful desk okay <laughs> uh, matt tell us a little bit about yourself yeah so i've been at maryland this is my 26th year working at the university i have been with fraternities and sororities that whole time so right now i'm the director of fraternity sorority life and we spend a lot of our time working with the college student leadership talking about what are the things that these organizations should be doing and how do we respond to some of the crises, uh, the situations that students find themselves yeah. in. Yeah. Did you meet, I, I can't remember, you met at work, right? My first week of working at the University that of Maryland. is crazy. And yeah. yours, were you early on there? I've been, been there two years. When Brooke came. Okay. So I've been there 24 years, he's been there 26, and we met my first week of work. Oh my gosh, and how long have you been married then? 20 years in June. 19 Coming years, up. Yeah. yeah, next year, next 20. Year. Yeah, you got to speak by a couple of years. We were a little, we were slow. Behind. Weren't you 2001? Yes. We were 2000, so wow. Well, yeah. Yeah, but October, yeah, I feel like. Yeah, we're at 18. Yeah. I'm trying to do fast math. I'm looking at Matt, who's like a math person. I can't do the fast math. Anyway, okay, so um, so here you go. If you work at the University of Maryland, you can meet your spouse. That's the takeaway. Okay, so both really cool jobs, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about like your path to those jobs. But one of the things that I love asking people is when you think about yourself, both like kind of in middle school and high school, was there anything during that time and I know I mean it could be the whole interview but <laughs> just anything specific right that you feel like for you either a challenge or a success that really shaped who you are and I think put you on a path right and toward towards what you wanted to do um, so I'll start with you first no absolutely nothing from my childhood put me on a path to where I ended up I was a pretty into sports, yeah. not particularly concerned about what the future employment opportunities, opportunities were. were. So yeah. I went to college and met with my academic advisor freshman year and my advisor said, so what do you want to do here at DePaul University? And I said, well, uh, I know exactly, I've got it all figured out. My dad's an accountant, I love math, I'm gonna be an accountant. And my academic advisor said, that's fantastic. So few kids coming into college know what they wanna do. Unfortunately, you came to the wrong college. The quad <laughs> does not have an accounting program. And I said, oh, right, didn't miss a beat. Oh, well, what programs do you have that are good? And she said, we, had a really, we have a really great English program. And I said, great, then I'll be an English major. So. Were you a good stu student in like junior high and high school? A's and B's, good enough to continue to play sports, not good enough to be interested. Was it something you try at, or did it come fairly easy to you? It came fairly easy to me. I did not try hard at all. I have 
I'm sure endured countless lectures from my parents that if <laughs> I applied myself, right. I could have gotten straight A's. Straight A's was never something that I aspired to. And for sports, like, so if I were to ask you in terms of that time, if you remember, like, academic or social pressure or athletic pressure, would like, okay. oh, extraordinary social pressure really? around drinking, around going out. <laughs> in fact, I always used sports as the reason not to drink. Yeah. So something unique about uh, Mountain Brook, well, like, it's unique to us because... We're both part of friend groups that drink, and they don't drink. So Brooke has never, well, did you ever drink? Not really. I mean, we probably forced it on you at some point, like <laughs> pins her down. Um, few, but, few wine pools. Right, here and there. But so for you, like, was that a choice you made early on because of sports? Like, you just knew that it was not something you, did your parents drink? So somewhere in my childhood, I got it into my head that my father had struggled with an addictive personality and okay. so i made up this story about how i probably also had that gene and so if i ever started drinking or doing something that it would be hard to stop years later i said this to my dad that this was such an influence on me growing up and he said i don't know what you're talking about that's not true at all i didn't i don't have an addictive personality <laughs> so um I watched my, so I have a brother who's six years older and a sister who's three years older, and I watched alcohol play a really uh, destructive role in both of their lives. Really? My brother went on a full ride to uh, Northwestern and failed out the first year after joining fraternity and drinking way too much and sleeping through finals. So he moved back into the house when I was in eighth grade or something, and my sister also struggled with alcohol as a way to cope with, I think, some depression and some difficult uh, social situations. And so I was not interested in doing that at all. And so most of my friends were into that. And athletes kind of you associate, right? Or just that crew probably. Yeah, the, part of yours, popular yeah, kids. Yeah. the popular crowd, yeah. Yeah. And so how did you handle that? The not drinking? Yeah. I said, used to say, just say no. It seems so easy. But. I used to say that whatever people would give as a rationale or a justification for drinking was not something that resonated with me. So they would say, I drink to fit in, or I drink to be able to socialize, right. or I drink to be able to have a good time. And I would say, I don't have any trouble doing any of those things without alcohol. So why would I do that? I've, I've never tasted beer in my life because every single person I've ever asked has said they hated it. It's the worst thing ever but it's an acquired taste. And I thought, well, why in the world would you want to acquire a taste for something that's really awful that is it's not really particularly food. healthy? Yeah. Yeah, you are someone that, um, I mean, we've talked about this occasionally, like you have, at least in our conversations, like you are someone that seems like you can put your mind to something and you, you like think it so. Like I remember we had this conversation once where <laughs> you were like, I said something yeah, yeah. I said something about having a headache, and you're like, well, just tell yourself not to have a headache. And I was like, excuse me? And you're like, I just tell myself I'm not going to have a headache, and then eventually I don't have a headache. And I was like, that's annoying, yes. but also kind of cool. So this power of mindset, right, or the power of intention, like now, is becoming much more like, actually, maybe you're like way ahead of the game, because I feel like it's all about manifesting your, your destiny, right? 
Would I you am, say that is a, like you are that person? Yeah, I would agree with everything you just said. <laughs> I would say if I have, had ever gone to therapy, my therapist would have said, your mother has done quite a number on you because my mother would say all the time, everything, that's all in your head. So I would say, I'm whatever. And she would say, that's all in your head. And kind of true. it is true. And is, yeah. so except that he will almost die from a cat allergy. And she's like, he's wheezing and he's flatlined on the floor, but it's just he's fine. He'll bounce right back. Uh, okay, so then um, so right. let's go to Brooke for a minute in terms of your I know your story a little bit better and closer to it, but I'll let you tell it. So, <laughs> um, but like what would you say during that time? Well, wait, before you go, so did you, oh, you were English. You decided on English as your major. Okay. So then for you, what about middle school, high school, anything for you at that time? Uh, none of that led me into student affairs uh, as a career. I was, I went to private school um, for K through one through eight. Uh, and then I went to public high school where I didn't know anyone. And we met, as you mentioned, yeah. we met uh, before high school and then played on the tennis team in high school. And so that's how I met some of my closest friends. Uh, so I started this high school where I didn't know anybody, but I immediately made a really close group of friends who I'm still friends with today. Insane. There's a payment structure that we all have <laughs> to stay part of this group of people, but yeah. Ended, up being, ended up being lifelong friends, which yeah. is very unusual and I say to my daughter regularly, I think it's very unusual what I have because Matt also has that, yeah. that his best friends are from high school. And so um, I, I think that's really unusual. Anyway, so I went to high school. I mostly got A's and B's. I put a lot of pressure on myself, I think more so than my parents. I heard some of the, uh, you're not living up to your potential. Um, took a lot of honors classes, AP classes, thought I wanted to go to medical school, um, had a lot of anxiety about that that really came out kind of in my junior and senior year of high school. Um, felt a lot of um, really sort of panic attacks and stuff like that, went to therapy, um, which helped me a lot. And then I went to college uh, at UVA and I thought I was going to be pre-med. And while I was in college, um, I majored in psychology, but I took organic chemistry. <laughs> the uh, class that kills all hopeful medical right. people. <laughs> right, which pretty much ended my, uh, yeah, it, it was, I think a struggle for me in college was to go from being kind of um, really bright and more yeah. of the top of the class to going to a, a school with a lot of really intelligent people and being much more kind of middle of the road and B's and C's were very normal. A's were much harder. Right. Uh, and so that I think was hard for me as well. I think for me about the career that we're in was I'm a very textbook, so I was very involved in high school, did a lot of activities, and then I went to college and I said, you know, college is going to be hard, I'm not going to get involved in anything right away, I lived in a dorm, which we now call residence halls, I lived in a residence hall my freshman year, had a good experience, I really liked it, but I didn't get involved in any activities. Then my second year of college, I moved off campus with three other girls. 
Uh, I was not in a sorority. They were all in sororities. And I was taking organic chemistry and I was incredibly depressed. Like I was not involved in any activities. I would go to my really hard classes. I would come back to my off-campus apartment. I would study all the time. And it was like not a good year for me right. in college. And several friends said to me, you should get involved in like the student programming board and the student union and stuff like that. And so I ended up joining at the end of my sophomore year, I ended up joining the student union programming board and got really involved in that. I learned that the advisors for that, like mm -hmm. that was, it could be a career. I was shocked. I had no idea that like you could work, be at a campus forever and work, you know, work with college students. And I loved that. And yeah. so I gave up on pre-med and I got really involved, ended up being a big student leader, ended up loving college and loving my, you know, junior and senior year of college. And that's how I kind of got on the path. Got so on the path, yeah. just really quick back to high school for a second, like in terms of your academics and like you, because I knew, you know, we were close, but would you like spend a lot of time at night, like studying and working? Like, were you a hard worker in high school in terms of getting your grades or was it like you went to school, you sat in the class, you listened and then that was, you know what I'm saying? Like how much extra effort and organization and prioritization did you have to put in then? I would say I oh, I did my homework, I studied. I wouldn't say I worked a ton to get right. the grades that I got. You know, I got mostly A's and B's. It wasn't no work. I mean, right. I certainly did the work, but I can remember, um, in fact, just when we saw um, our friend Meg, another yeah. mutual friend of ours, I saw her not that long ago, and she said she remembered one of the most significant things she remembered about this house was sitting here during AP English, working together on our journal entries, oh. and like she would do some, and I would do some, and we had a whole group of people, and we would sort of share the work, and... Sounds like cheating. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit, a little actually. Bit. Uh, hey, however you, yeah. whatever works, right, to get right. it done. That's, That's right. collaboration. That's collaboration. <laughs> it's teamwork. It's it teamwork. teamwork. So um, I think that uh, I worked, but I wouldn't say I killed myself. And do you feel like at that time social or academic pressure? So you also, like, never drank, and we I didn't drank drink a fair amount. Yes. yes. The, the, you hung out with the people I hung out with drank a fair amount. Just a tiny bit. Yep. Uh, did, did some kind of recreational drugs, just a little bit. <laughs> the boys. That's <laughs> the girls didn't really do that. Um, um, yes, I think that. I mean, I loved high school. Right. And did I, you make a choice though? Like, I'm trying to remember. Like, did you similarly, or <clears> were you like, did you just say, I just don't? Oh, I think for me it was about control and anxiety and that fearful of what fearful that would be. of yeah yeah of losing. losing control yeah. Um, so I know we were. It's hard because we were in the same group, but d did you feel a lot of social pressure? Or even academic pressure, do you feel like? I feel like it's so different now. I mean, yeah. these kids feel a ton of pressure that I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I certainly didn't feel, but I wasn't exactly. I think sometimes you know. I felt social pressure. Yeah. Uh, especially around drinking. Like yeah. in high school and college. Yeah. <coughs> um, but I think that I, and, and I felt some academic pressure, but both I put more on myself. But I certainly didn't feel like, I mean, I loved my group of friends, right? And I think Matt was the same, right? Like, I really loved the people that I was friendly with. Yeah. And I 
saw the other people and I never had any kind of like, I wish I would fit in with that group or I wish I was more popular or I wish I was smarter or whatever. Yeah. I think I really just loved the people that I was with. And then just on the anxiety front, so you and I have connected on that. And I, I really started having more anxiety and panic in college, like my freshman year is when it really hit for me debilitating to the point where I was like not leaving the house um, at certain parts. So, uh, which was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it set me on a path of therapy and, you know, healing a lot of things that from a dysfunctional place that allowed me to then I right. think, open up my life and be a productive person. So, but while it was happening very traumatic and hard and, um, and I know that you and I've talked about that, but would you say for you, like what role has that played or like getting, Dealing with that and and then kind of not because you there's an element to it that we have but like kind of moving through that like what has that done for you, do you think? Well, I think that it has um, certainly I am better able to handle it and I think it's something that will always be with me right, right. in the background and I think that when. There are certain periods of life that are more stressful than you feel it come out more. Um, I think the biggest thing it's done for me is really enabled me to help my kids yeah. with it, right? right? Especially Sterling, um, and sort of help her identify with what she has been through and what she's going through as a teenager with what I went through as a teenager. And right, I think too. There's like something about it that like. I don't know if humility is the right word, but you're able to be empathetic and you can really put yourself in other people's shoes once you've had something when you never, like up until that point that it happened to me, and I, I didn't have any problems, right? Like everything came, you know, right. pretty easy. I mean, the academics, I wasn't even really trying. So until <laughs> I was really tested with that, but I do think it was the first thing that sort of stopped me in my tracks and I had to figure out a way out. Right. And I think that there's something about that to do that as a younger person that helps you in your adult life to say, I'm going to get myself out of this, you know, I'm going to, so did you have anything like that for you? I mean, athletics maybe does that because there's that whole, like, you know, the, there's like defeat and there's winning and there's struggle in that. But like for you, is there anything that you had to overcome or challenges that you felt like have taught you resilience? Wow. I think that's a really hard question. I think that the friend group that I was in was the popular crowd. And so I didn't, I didn't feel lots of social pressure around other wanting to change who I was because I was already in a group that most people sought to be in. The resiliency piece, I don't know. I don't know that I can attribute that to any, I, um, You are incredibly resilient. And, and part of it is that mind over matter. I think you just don't let things get in your way. You know, right. I spent a summer in college selling books door to door mm. in Texas. West Texas. And so that whole experience was about character building. I didn't really know any of the people I, w I went with, four or five fraternity brothers who I wouldn't have said were my best friends. Um, hope they don't listen. And, <laughs> who, and when I went out there, I got separated from them immediately and was with these two guys from Tennessee 
and Paducah, Kentucky, not Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And we knocked on doors literally until we found a place to live for the summer. And then we worked every day. We'd get up at 7 and we'd work a.m. and we'd work until 9 p.m. And so we got one day off a week. And so it was all about a numbers game. Knock on doors, pitch your product, and X amount of people will buy. And so it got very um, monotonous, but it was exceptionally good at teaching resilience. That it wasn't me that they were rejecting. It was what I represented, the door-to-door -door right. salesman with a product that they clearly didn't need or didn't think that they need. And so that rejection time after time was really hard. And it became important for me to learn, this isn't me, this is right. how things work. And so I think that was really helpful throughout life. And then I've been surrounded by, as you both have also, a set of friends who were always there to help kind of well, spread yeah. the weight, right? Yeah. And lift me up in times when I was down. And so there were times when my I would attribute lots of my development to my friends being able to yeah. help me think about it from a different perspective. Yeah. I think you cannot um, undermine or dilute the power of friendship during these like critical miles. Yes. And I think, I mean, I've told Brooke this and our group of friends that I, I was savvy enough to attach myself to a group of people that were super motivated and achievement oriented because somewhere in me, I knew I was that person. It just took me a little while to get there. But I think people listening, hopefully like the looking around and, and looking at your friend group and picking people that are that have your best interest at heart and that it's hard to find that sometimes like and you may have to go through a couple of groups to get that if you yeah. don't already have it but my um husband's dad always said show me your friends I'll show you your future and we say that in our house all the time so it's like be smart about who you're picking to spend your time with right and who they mm -hmm. get who gets to get the investment of your time but also right back at you you know um so then, so for you, so you're majoring in English, and then your college experience, good experience? Fantastic experience. And did you, because you played sports in high school, did you have any hopes of playing college athletics? Your brother had gotten a full ride, or was his academic? ROTC. ROTC, okay. And, yeah, I thought I would be a... D1 athlete, a right? big fish in a small pond high school. I know I was D3, so yeah. I thought I would be a big fish in a small yeah. pond college. Got recruited to play basketball. The When I showed up, the coach had just been fired for having a losing season. They hired a new coach who wanted no part of the recruiting class that the old coach had. Didn't phase me at all. I mean, it was sad, but... It, I mean, I, was, I didn't go there to play basketball, and so I had just joined the fraternity, had this kind of social support system already in place, and ended up running cross-country um, during my time in college. So, so you found another way, though. So that's interesting. Like, you were going with, in with an assumption, of, like because you love basketball, right? And that you were at least going to get to play there, and that's, that's an accomplishment. So... Not deterred, like you're going to figure it out. My philosophy in life has always been everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so to just kind of roll with it and not get caught up in this is not how I've mapped out. I, I'm right. not a big let's set one, three, five, ten year goals. Let's really work hard to achieve those. There are some people who are driven by that. I'm more of a relaxed, fly by the seat of your pants. Whatever's meant to happen right. will happen. 
if you leave yourself open for opportunity, then you'll be able to roll with it. What about, um, so I'm curious for you about like relationships and like, cause you're a fairly charismatic person and I feel like you're a social person. You're welcome. And, um, <laughs> so do you feel like that's helped you along the way in terms of, um, being able to yeah. charm your way into things? Yes. You're, yes. 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 Definitely. Which I just talked to your daughter about the same thing. Yeah. She seems to have maybe that little spark too. Yeah, so there's a lot of privilege, right? I come from yeah. a lot of privilege. There was, there, I mean, rough, a rough life yeah. for me is not a rough life right. for most people. And so um, I use sense of humor to kind of disarm yeah. people and to disarm situations and to take the tension out of a room. And so for me, college was... I mean, it wasn't like women were lining up to date me, but I was a serial monogamy person, right? So I would I would get into relationships for kind of three years, and so I had been in a relationship for a couple years from high school when I went to college. Uh, my then girlfriend in high school ended up, she was a year younger than I, and she ended up coming to the same school, and she would say, in fact, she would say it to me later on in my life, that I never broke up with her, I just started dating other people, and so by the time she got there, I was dating other people, and so years later, we would end up reconnecting yeah. and having a conversation, and I said, look, I, it sounds like I was just a complete and utter jerk to you, and she said, you kind of were. I said, I'm really sorry. I just, I was not, uh, relationship-wise, I was not at all mature. And so I, I didn't understand how people's emotions worked. And right. so it was all about me all the time. I'm the youngest, clearly the favorite child in my family. And so it was, yeah. it was really... You know what's interesting about that, though? That I, I, I believe uh, now that people that are in that mindset... There's a balance to everything, and you need to have empathy, and you need to be thinking about other people, but there is sort of this balance of people that I think think of themselves first and take care of themselves first and work from that perspective. Given what I've seen in the world of sort of corporate life, those people tend to do very well, and so, and I think they're healthier in some ways. In some ways, right? So I think it's a tricky thing, and if you if you index way far on that side, then you know you, you could be seen as someone who is um, very like self obsessed and self you know motivated, and and that's not great either. So, but I do think there's some there's something about like you know kind of putting that person first in a healthy way. That's that can be a good thing. Yeah. Okay, so then you majored in English, and then what was your first job out of? Yeah, so I majored in English and then thought, clearly like I should be a lawyer, right? Everybody right. goes yes. on from being an English major to law school. So I clerked at a law firm during college and for a month and absolutely hated it. Mm -hmm. So graduated with no clue what I wanted to do. I love it. Not, <laughs> That's the kind of story I want to hear. <laughs> I moved, I thought if I could read and write, I would be hireable and I just didn't know what I wanted to do. So I moved back home. My very wise mother said, you need to find a job until you find a career. So I worked at a bank in our hometown as a teller mm -hmm. and watched everybody around me 
start off on their path, launch their careers, get into much more serious relationships. I'm from Indiana, everybody's married by the time they're 24, kids when they're 26. So I was floundering. And at one point, after six or seven months, my mother said, I think that you should come to this program. I'm a guest speaker at this leadership retreat and they're gonna have a panel where people come in and talk about their careers and there are people who spend their life working with college students and I think you'd be really good at that. And I said, great, I'll come to this panel. So I went to the panel. There was a dean of students who was there from Butler University who imprinted on me as the kind of life that you could engage with college students, work with them through this very developmentally challenging period of time, 18 to 22 year old traditional yeah. age, and I was sold. You were sold. Sold. Was that a man that you saw mm -hmm. in that when mm -hmm. you said you saw that? Yeah. That's amazing. It sounds like your mom has been like a pretty pivotal person for you. Like, pivotal. Yes. Both my parents have been, absolutely. Yeah. And like kind of calling things out and seeing things and then helping you sort of push you a little bit in directions. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. I'm nodding my head vigorously. Yeah, I know. Like they can't yes, see you now. I'm making you <laughs> Yes. You have to talk. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So then now you're both. Okay. So let's go back to you. Like you, what was your first job? Because you worked before you got your master's, yeah, correct? I got out of college. Uh, I didn't have a job. I certainly felt... Um, I went to UVA where lots of people want to go to law school and med school right. and I certainly felt going to UVA uh, the pressure to get a job where you ride the metro, wear a suit, carry a briefcase kind of consulting kind of job because right. that's what everybody yeah. did, right? right? So I uh, moved home, uh, I went to Europe right yes. for two months after college and then I uh, wow. moved home and had no job and I ended up getting a job at a consulting firm where I was like a research assistant and I basically went went downtown crunch numbers sat at a desk all day the people who had master's degrees were out in the field and doing more interesting things and it was a smaller consulting firm that did sort of social services kind of consulting and i hated it so i knew that i wanted to go back to graduate school for higher education so i applied but by the time i did that it was too late to go only one year at later right so i had to wait another cycle so then I quit the job at the consulting firm after a year, and then I was a substitute teacher and a temp for a year. Uh, so I would, you know, was living at home with my parents, who were very nice to take me back in. Uh, and I sub was a substitute, and I tempted, and I ended up uh, going back to graduate school. And I went to Vanderbilt University for graduate school. How did you know about higher ed, though? Like, what, what, what was, what exposed you to say I want to go back and get a master's in higher ed? Uh, so going to UVA and being oh in, in the student union, in the student union, like Alan Delong, yeah, yeah, Alan Delong, right, was my he was the uh, program advisor for the student union programming board, and he was the one who sort of introduced me to. This is a career. The dean of students had a big influence on me. The vice president for student affairs. 
I thought, you know, I can do this. Yeah. This is really fun. I could do this as a career. So for people that may have an interest in this or just now that they're hearing about yeah. your story and we'll talk more about where you book because you're both doctors, which is so cool. But um, what um, if you're in college, like what are you majoring in as an undergrad? Because you have to get a master's in higher ed administration, right? So but prior to that, like as an undergrad, does it matter? It doesn't matter. So you can kind of have any degree, and then it's just... You can't nod. You have to talk. You're talking. I'm going to talk over you. I'm not going to interrupt you. What you're saying is correct, so I'm nodding in positive affirmation. I I feel like that's true across the board right now. Very few majors do you have to select in as early as... Even majors do you have to select in to be able to focus on from middle school right, right? They, yeah they start talking to elementary school kids what do you want to do and let's start the path to get there and i'm sure that's just to help them understand how to think long term about those things but it's an extraordinary amount of pressure to feel like you have to have planned out your life this whole time so my advice would be major in whatever makes you happy whatever yeah. you do well in whatever you're going to feel like mm-hmm. i can survive mm-hmm. and then when you get to college again major in whatever you feel like will prepare you to be a critical thinking contributor right. citizen. so it's interesting one of the things i found as i've talked to people is and i love this is that you know in terms of finding that thing that you like, it, it can happen at all these different places. Right? Yes. It doesn't happen at a, at a prescribed rate. And I love what you said, Matt, about like, I, I try very carefully not to ask my kids, what do you want to be? Right. Because I think that's a ridiculous question. Right. <laughs> at 15 even yeah. or 10 or eight. Right. So it's, it's, what do you like? What inspires you? What strengthens you? you know, we've done a lot in corporate um, at least in the consulting world, around you know figuring out people's strengths and then exploiting those strengths and creating teams of people that are all leveraging their strengths. I mean, that's a much more happy group of people, right. and you're more productive and you're more profitable, right? All these things. So I totally agree with you. I think um, for people that and like I think I would. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. I think I would have loved higher ed, right? Yeah. I think I would have been great. Yeah. And I'm sort of finding my way back in a, in an alternative route now, right? Trying to do the stuff that I'm doing, but. Um, I had no idea you could have gone to school and, and right. you've gotten Neither a degree in higher, right? right? So I think having you on here and having people hear it um, is cool. And then also just that there's lots of ways that you can get there in terms of path. So I'm interested in talking about your perspective now. Well, I have two questions. One, the PhD thing. So maybe I'll ask that first, just the decision to pursue that. Being in higher ed in the academic world and academic profession, I'm curious about, I've heard some stereotypes about that community that, you know, that it can be super competitive, that it can be somewhat like, uh, what's the word I'm like, uh, elitist? It's like lack of a better term. Ivory tower. Yeah. So I'm curious if that is your experience and if pursuing the PhD is something that in that community is like, now I have street cred because I have this, right? And if I don't have it, I don't. Um, or is it a dream? Or is it, you know, so I'm curious in that you both did it and kind of how you did it, you know, you both did it having two kids and working full time, like that, it's not easy either. So um, maybe I'll just start with you, Brooke, on that one. Like, what, what, when did you decide to do that? And, and what was sort of the kind of why behind it? So I think I've always been fairly 
motivated in the kind of academic you what's, like what's the next thing like I need to check the box to and do you feel good see I feel like you're feel good in academic like doing academics like is that a happy place for you in terms of being in the classroom is it no it's not okay. I don't love being in the classroom no <laughs> But I am motivated by accomplishment, right? I'm motivated by, like, let's... The pedigree of it? Yes. Does that motivate you? Yeah, kind of I think the, so. Yeah. yeah. But you don't make me call you doctor. Nobody calls me She doctor. doesn't? I know. <laughs> she should. She makes me call yeah. <laughs> uh, So I got my master's. I started working at the University of Maryland, and I... Uh, knew that I wanted to go back and get my PhD because I knew that in the field of higher ed and higher ed administration that you can open the most doors if you have a PhD, right? So it wasn't something I needed for the job I had then, but it would allow me to be qualified for more jobs down the road. So I knew that that was a good thing to have. So we were dating and I was taking like one or two classes at a time a semester and just sort of kind of plugging away we at University of Maryland they have a fantastic higher ed administration program and we get free tuition so it was yeah, sort like of amazing. like, like it a was no-brainer in a way a no -brainer. Like, yeah. like it was there it was a great benefit I could leave work and go to class you know from four to seven or whatever so I took one or two classes at a time I started in 1998. Um, I finished my coursework when I was eight months pregnant with Sterling mm -hmm. in 2003. So it took me five years to do all my coursework. Uh, and then you have to write a dissertation. And so I had a baby. I was working full time. I did nothing for like a year. Um, because I was working full-time and I had a newborn right and so after about a year my advisor said to me okay it's time and um, I knew that I was really interested in full-time working moms in higher ed and I mean that's the experience that I was living yeah so I was able to write my dissertation on work-life balance for full-time uh, working moms in higher yeah. ed yeah so and cool. it was very interesting and it took me about um after I started back up it took me three years so I graduated in 2007 um so it took me nine almost 10 years to that's do, amazing do the though, whole thing from start to finish to, yeah. to be one that committed to it and to not give up right so at any point did you think of giving up and being like oh. I, ne I never thought of giving up I thought I thought, um, I think Matt might disagree. <laughs> I, I definitely <laughs> felt like, I definitely felt like when I finished my coursework, I thought I'm through the hard part, mm -hmm. right? Because your coursework is when you have to show up at a certain time and you're accountable to other people and you have to do your homework or your reading or whatever week to week. I thought I've done the hard part. Now I can do it on my own time. I can be self-motivated, whatever. Well, being self-motivated yeah. is like just for the birth. I mean, it's really hard to it's keep hard. yourself motivated to finish. And I had a really good advisor and she was sort of, she was very, 
held me accountable, but not in a overly annoying and pushy way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't know if I would have finished without her. She was, she was amazing. And what did it feel like to accomplish that? Huge. After, a, you know, amazing. eight to ten year kind of effort. It was amazing. It was an amazing accomplishment. But in the field that we're in, um, especially the older people, they don't use the letters. Like, they don't use the PhD. They don't make people call them doctor. It's more like an assumed... Like, certification on this. Kind of thing. Right. And so... I felt like I have worked really hard for this. Like, I want people to call me doctor, and I want to put PhD on my business cards and my signature on letters and stuff like that. And But that's just not the culture in the institution that we work in. So, I mean, everybody pretty much goes by their first name, and which is fine, but we all have it on our, like, email signature right. and, our, and our business cards and stuff like that. So... I mean, it was huge. It was huge. And I still feel like I don't know what job I ultimately want. I have, I know that I don't want to be like a university president or probably even a vice president for student affairs. But uh, I now have the credentials yeah. to kind of do what I... And I think just setting out to do something and seeing it through, right? Yeah. Like that, there's something to that, regardless of your age, right. that feels really good. Right. Now, what's your story over here, Mr.? I don't have a story. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. What's my story? Your PhD story. Yeah. Um, I remember it differently. Oh, okay. How do you remember it? You remember, you remember Brooke's story differently? Yeah. Okay. I, I think that there is a constant counter-narrative in everyone's head that is challenging what it is you're doing. So, am I good enough to do this? Am I going to finish this? Is this worth all of the agony? Why am I doing this? Is the reward really worth all of the effort and energy? And I think there is extraordinary external pressure on everybody to be on a uh, some trajectory. kind of escalator or trajectory where you whatever it is you've done is not good enough for whatever is next. And so even if you feel like I'm in a really good place and I really like what I'm doing right now, People are constantly saying, well, you're not going to do that for the rest of your life, are you? You're going to do this. You want to do this. You're destined for better, greater, bigger, more, right? And so I think that one of the best lessons in life for me, having never consumed alcohol, but having been bombarded from freshman year of high school all the way through the end of college for eight straight years on why don't you drink? You're going to have more fun. Drink, drink with me. Drink, drink, drink. All of that peer pressure and being able to stand up for that, stand up to that, really created an ability to say, I don't have to get caught up in the rat race. I don't have to get caught up in the, I want to work at a consulting company. I want to be partner in seven years. I want to have a bigger house, a nicer car, all of that. And I think that the vast majority of my friends got caught up in that mm. and would talk about how awful it was and how demanding it was and how much burnout there right. was. And so I feel like when we talk about the PhD program, the dissertation, the whole experience is a lot like that. And once you're in it, you're, you kind of feel like 
you can't get out of it. Now, there are certainly folks who don't finish the process and they are wonderful people. And I don't think less of them as, right, right. Uh, as humans, right? But the industry certainly does. And the idea that you couldn't finish your doctorate, for no matter what the reason is, right? Back to your point about empathy, right? Brene Brown does some fantastic stuff around yes, empathy, but lots of people have no empathy. And so they have their own story that they're gonna say, this, this is what you did, and it's gonna reinforce the narrative in my head so that I can continue to get by in my life. So my choice to journey, pursue it. choice yeah. to pursue the doctor was, I'm literally out of college where I can get it for free, why wouldn't I do this? And I took classes for a long time until I enrolled in the program. Finally, I enrolled in the program. I, I think I finished in, I don't remember, eight years or something. And it was never- A little faster than I did. He made sure to be a but little But I think faster. it's interesting. What, what, well, I think what like, A little shorter than I did. Nine oh. years, I said. Oh, maybe it took me ten. <laughs> I don't remember. But it seems to me, you tell me if I'm wrong, but your desire for pursuing it is different. Mine was absolutely a means to an end. Mine was like, I'm here, I can get it for free, right. and I want to have this credential but for I whatever think, I yeah. want down the road. And I think I'm a very shallow person. I wanted a piece of paper on the wall that said PhD. You really? Yours I, I had a, a really nice framed bachelor's degree, <laughs> I had a really nice framed <laughs> master's degree, and I had oh, this man. space like on my wall yeah. that I thought that would be really so nice I to have a the PhD. thing about it that's so interesting is because it is such a, I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment, It's but it's also like, I, I don't know why this question's coming to mind, you can tell me if I'm way off, but you know, you and I have talked a lot about like weight loss, right, or, or things that you want to achieve that when I get this, everything will mean this, right? Mm -hmm. If I am a size four, my life will be better. If I have a million dollars, my life will be better. If I get this credential, my life will be better. If I make, you know, if I make partners, right, like exactly what you exactly. described, like I'm going to create these, this, this world of external factors that then somehow validate the choices I've made and who I am. So I'm curious, in a PhD world, is there any element of that? Like once I get the PhD, like I'm going to feel respected in this industry. I'm going to feel like I've kind of made it here in this community, right? Or is, or to your point, like it's available and it's free, but you know what I mean? Is there any aspect of that? You, you go first now. You're nodding, but... Yes, there, I think there is a lot of aspect to that. And yeah. you're asking a great question that the answer, of course, depends on who it is that's sitting in the chair right. talking. So I can tell you my experience with Brooke, we would talk about through all of the stages of the doctoral program, coursework, comps, um, proposing your dissertation, defending your dissertation. And, and Brooke would talk a lot about the day when that was over yeah. life would be so much better life right. would be so much i would yeah. have so much more free time i won't yeah. have anything to worry about and i would chuckle because that's not how brooke is wired so <laughs> we will find it <laughs> so, yeah, right? so yeah. every yeah. stage of brooke's life there has been something next that fills that i would describe it as a need for Validation? Uh, not even validation, a drive, okay. right? Something yeah. to turn your attention to. So there are some people who, when they walked across that stage and got their diploma with their PhD, that was it. They had arrived. Right. That's just not Brooke. Right. Right. And so for me, that 
that process is so individual that I can't talk about. So for you, it's not like for, from your perspective abrupt, it's like how she's wired and there's a drive there for you. It's more of an individual thing that you wanted a piece of paper. Oh, I think it's always easier to see how other people are wired right. than it is. How you're, how you're, <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. I want Brooke to tell you how I'm wired. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, so for me, for me, it was, it was simply a, okay, that, that eliminates some barrier. barrier that if I ever wanted to be in a position, vice president, dean of students, president of university, okay. and someone said, you have to have a PhD, I'd say, okay, good, I got, I got it. Yeah. Right? Check the box. Yes. Yeah. And why not, like, have right. something why and not? be ready for the moment? I mean, there's, right. I think there's something to that, right? It's like understanding the opportunities that are afforded to you and then not being, like, setting yourself up to partake. Like, it's brilliant, right? It right. shows, yeah, I think. And I think in some ways you're more ambitious in a in a different kind of way like you are very comfortable in front of the crowd mm -hmm. in front of the microphone being sort of the face i'm a much better being the person who is the behind the scenes. <laughs> She's Definitely. She's great behind the operation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I could see you. I mean, you said early on in our relationship that you wanted to maybe be a college president. Like, that's yeah. not something that I would right. ever aspire to, I don't think. I don't know. You know what I think, Sarah? I don't know what just made me think of this, and then I won't keep you much longer, but... Um, I just thought of this. So my husband has an electric skateboard. I don't know if you know this. And it's like his hobby that he loves now. And he takes it, yeah, all through the neighborhood. He's actually kind of like the, the like, he's become a, like, thing that people watch in the neighborhood. <laughs> it's like, do you see Paul today? Because it's like he's 50 years old on an electric skateboard. Um, and he loves it. And it makes him so happy. And he's like, he takes it as far as the like, battery takes him. He just, he comes home, he's so happy. And he came home and I was kind of bitter. And I was like, what is my skateboard, right? And my skateboard is kind of, I think, more like you, or with Brooke, like pointing to Brooke, but where I like set a goal and I want to achieve the goal. And I get, I get sort of agita about like my own state of like, am I doing more? Can I do more? How can I, my thing is legacy and impact and how can I, and I did it in the, I thought, well, I'm going to leave the corporate world so I'm not so caught up in all that, right? And start my own business. Well, this is like 10 times harder when you're doing your own business. And yet I think I get fuel from that. And so I had to like check myself and say, like doing this, I love doing this. This is my version of skateboard, right? So kind of figuring out like, it's not all bad, right? Like the fact that if you have goals and aspirations and kind of the why behind why you're doing it, you know, it's still a great thing. Okay. And this enables you to spend time with people who yes. are interesting to you and people yes. that you care about. Right? And I really always wanted to talk show since I was what? Right. Eight, Oprah. Six, That's right. Eight, so this is my way of doing that. Right. Um, all right. Before we go, I, I like to ask people if you... Um, could go back and give a little bit of counsel to your, well, see, I have another question I want to ask you, so I'm not asking that. That's it's fine. really about your point of view being in higher ed and seeing people now, yes. right, at this age group. Um, and, you know, as a parent, I have my own view of that, of, of sort of some scary like feelings about what they're sort of up against in terms of college and that environment and um, sort of this kind of conversation of, like, it's a lot of money, to invest and if you don't really know what you want to do and like the, the like when you get after your liberal arts major and you get out it's like are you ending up like owing 
more than what you're making, right? So the value proposition of college, I think, has changed a lot. And the conversation's happening a lot with people like my kid's age, you know, as a sophomore. Like, is it really worth it? So that's a question. A lot to say about that. Yeah. And then the other question is just, like, if I can drill it down. So that it's just, you know, what are sort of your, like, one hope and kind of one fear that you have given your, for that, you know, 18 to 22 demo, right? Like, given that you're surrounded by it and you see it, like, what is one hope that you see because you, you have hope given what you're seeing and maybe one fear? Maybe you take the hope fear one and you take the, the value proposition one. So I think with the value proposition, I mean, I think in the environment that we grew up in, that Teresa yeah. and I grew up in and that Matt grew up in, even though he was in the, in the Midwest, it was college was an expectation, yeah. right? No matter how smart you were, no matter how motivated you were, there was generally enough money or you could borrow enough money and it was just everybody went to college. Going to a two-year college was not a thing. Not going to college was not or at really least not acceptable. in our circle, right? Not in, in our, our circle right. of white privilege. Right, that's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. So, so I think that, um, there now I think there are so many other options and more things that are becoming acceptable in terms of I mean some and Matt will probably talk about this but some kids are really motivated towards the trades and they would be yes. really great at being a car mechanic or being a, yeah. a yes a carpenter an electrician or whatever and they should be encouraged and celebrated for doing that if that's where they are happiest and can make the most impact. Also, I think kids that aren't ready um, to go away to college can, I think that, you know, two-year community college is great. I think that um, not the four-year experience is not for everybody. And it's not for everybody right away. It's so much more acceptable to take a gap year, to do community service, to travel, whatever before you go. I think that so many of our students are not ready. And, um, and it, you know, it's so much of a scarier time now, right? I mean, my, I mean, we were worried about drinking and driving, right? Yeah. And about Certainly not suicide, right? Not yeah. being shot at. Right. And so my children who have spent some time with, um, their grandparents, my parents, right? My mom is really trying to get them interested in like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and women's <laughs> rights. Yeah. And this is why you need to worry about this. And you know, the fight for equality and blah, blah, blah. And Sterling says, you know, I care about that and that's important, but really we are worried about gun violence and safety and school shootings and right. not about women's rights. I mean, it's like... And I think community, right? I, ha I have a sense of corporate citizenship of their generation that I think is amazing that I don't know that we had our... We didn't for right. sure around how do we make this a better place and how are we going right. to hold people to be um, more accountable for how we're doing things. Right. I love that about their... What seems to be yeah I mean what we see with the kids who are coming to college so much is the um, the lack of resilience right and they don't have any coping skills and they don't know how to uh, a friend of ours who's the director of parent and family affairs um, he calls the cell phone the longest umbilical cord in the world right mm -hmm. because they are yeah. in constant attachment and constant contact with their parents about 
I did that on this test. I had a fight with my boyfriend. I, you know, multiple, multiple times a day via texting. And it's just, I mean, we had right the phone at the end of the hall or whatever. And you maybe talked once a week to home. I mean, there was not right that kind of involvement. Of so you're saying sex. don't go to college? <laughs> no, no. I'm saying that there are other options. Yeah. If if college doesn't seem right for kids right now, I think there are many other options yeah. that are more acceptable than they were 30 years ago. And if, there's still value in going. And there's absolutely still value in going. Like, I think there's something about those formative years being in that environment that is that is a huge developmental play yes. that I think is so important and and I'm not sure it's a safer place to develop those skills in some ways right there's a construct there that people are sort of on the same cadence right that they're developing whereas like you're 18 and you go into the working world and you don't have that four years like if you get a cyber certification and you're making like 80 grand that's great but then it's like I think there's something about that that's a little bit harder to cultivate some of those social skills that you're talking about or I think you, you have know, to live apart from your parents. I mean I right. think the great things about school, about college are the things that we do. Right. I mean the yeah. the things that you can gather kind of outside the classroom, right. right? You need to learn how to live in a community. You need to care learn how to care for others. You need how to learn how yourself. to make yeah. good decisions for yourself. You need to learn what's important to you and what's not. You you need to learn how to spend your time. You need to learn how to determine what your priorities are. Like there're just there's so many things that you have to learn when you go to college that you can learn by being separated from your yeah. family, you know. Yes. And I think for kids that struggle, like we have a friend whose child is sort of struggling to figure out, like he doesn't feel that passion for academics. I think he kind of wants to go to school, but he doesn't know. And, and it, it, this like sort of what's, what's in it for me. Yes, <laughs> and it's right. like, you can't see, you know, sometimes you have to go do things when you can't see the ending Yeah. and you figure out a lot in those four. I certainly was a like huge transformation in those four years where right. I came out a completely different person, right. super motivated, super directed, kind of knowing I wanted to participate in some way. So it's tricky. not the party girl that went in. I know. Right. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Full on, like, and thinking you could do that for you. Right? Exactly. <laughs> really. If I am telling you, if I got through it. All right. So hope and fear. Hope and fear for students who yeah, are just kind of the heading, generation, or like yeah, as people are kind of in this place of going into school and coming out like that. Yeah, I don't know. Are they Z now? I don't know. Like what the right. So, my hope is that people are more able now to be authentic, yes. to be comfortable with who they are than they have been for the last several hundred years. Yes. Right. That yes. Students can find a way, a group, a niche, a support system, and that they don't have to feel like I need to be a different person so that I can fit in. No. It's okay to be gay. It's okay to be trans. It's okay to be Muslim. It's okay to be whatever. So my hope is that we create an environment where people can say i want to be x mm-hmm. and people will say great how can we help you get there my fear is that this generation doesn't want to adult right adulting is a scary thing and so we're putting off getting our driver's license we're putting off trying alcohol we're putting off having sex which i don't i'm not opposed to putting off any of those things but the idea that they we have 
created so much fear and anxiety and pressure about adulting that we're pushing that adolescence even further along yeah. is incredibly problematic. So when you talk about what, I, I literally, this is way too much information, yeah. right? Our 10 year old just entered womanhood. Yeah. And so my joke was, hey, great. Now you can get married and be a contributing part of society, <laughs> right? We, and we'll get a dowry that we can give yes. someone, right? Yeah. But that in the way the old days, day. <laughs> right? In the way old days, we were just listening to Alexander Hamilton, yes. right? And at 14, he was off doing X, Y, and yeah. Z that I probably couldn't do at 40. So I think my fear is that it's not that our younger generations aren't totally capable and exceptionally talented. It's that we have taken so much of the autonomy away from them that they feel like they can't do it without someone there or they don't know how to do it. So we take away all the playground uh, equipment that's too high or they're going to get hurt on because we don't want them to be hurt. We take away all of the having to struggle to get their own um, get their own grade figured out in school because we want to try and make sure that we remove all of the obstacles to their success. And the truth is it's the obstacles to success that are what actually teach people the skills to be successful. And so the more our generation continues to say, we're going to make this easier for you. Don't worry about this. I'll call the professor. I'll call the teacher. I'll call the coach. We're, we're creating a group of kids now teenagers who say i don't know how to do that and i'm scared of that and so that's my greatest fear that we think we're doing them this great service and we're actually hamstringing them totally agree and um, some of the conversations i'm having right now with some uh, partners is creating some type of program that's somewhat of a simulation that people come in and have an experience where they leave and they're like they've been through something that helps them understand that you're a capable human being as it relates to leadership, as it relates to communication skills, as it relates to influence and collaboration, like these soft skills that I'm so passionate about because I've seen such a decline in people's ability mm-hmm. to operate because they've not been tested, mm-hmm. right? Now it's everything is, I, I love technology, but it's become a hindrance in a lot of these ways where people need to be, have these skills and they just aren't there. So to like, I totally agree, and I think there's a lot we can do to help change that. Um, so, go ahead. That's on the next podcast. That is, I know. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so before we go, um, your advice to your like younger self, right? So your kind of middle school or high school self, anything that you would say that, um, given your vast experience now, your, your wise soul, right, looking back, what would you share to help help young Brooke and young Matt be on their way. Uh, you know, I um, I like to believe it, don't sweat the small stuff. I'm not very good at practicing what I preach. Um, I think that one of the most useful things that I've talked through with um, our 16-year-old that she got from therapy was um, what is the what is the worst thing that can happen? what is the best possible thing that can happen and what is the most likely thing to happen right in this scenario that you are worried about or anxious about or nervous about you know work through those three scenarios in your head and there is 
such a small likelihood that the worst possible case is what is actually going to happen. So help to kind of put things right. in perspective. Yeah, frame it. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And what about you? I don't have any pearls of wisdom, right? I, I wouldn't go back and give myself any advice. I think the one thing that I am struck by every day is how precious life is and how fast it goes. And so when you're 12, you can't wait to be 16. When you're 16, you can't wait to be 21. When you're 21, you can't wait to be 28. Whatever it is, you're always looking forward to that next. And then there's a certain point in time, different for everybody, where all of a sudden you say, oh, good Lord, I'm this and my next milestone, I don't want any of those milestones. And so I think for me, just reminding, no matter how old you are, enjoy that age. So saying to my 10 year old, go out and have fun. Don't worry about whatever it is you're all upset about right now. Sterling, do not let this all get to you because 16 is a really hard age. And yes, you get to drive and you think all of a sudden everything's gonna be, but they're gonna be boys or girls, they're gonna be accidents or mistakes and just enjoying every little step of that so that you don't constantly miss what's happening now because you're fixated on what that next better future thing is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Live in the present, right? I live in the present. Yeah, it's such a great quality. Sometimes, sometimes it means you're late for things too, <laughs> and that's an okay thing. That, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you both very much. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. This, this was, was awesome. Fun. So fun. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Brooke and Matt. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I loved how much they shared. They were open, I think extremely insightful. Uh, So many great pieces of wisdom throughout this episode. As a reminder, if you like this discussion, please subscribe and rate Relatable on iTunes. If you get a chance, please write and review. We'd love to see your comments. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, and we also have a TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable.